Running Backwards. Episode 5 Monday Afternoon <clears throat> Things haven't gone to plan. It turns out that young women with young children are both extraordinarily vigilant and surprisingly aggressive. It has also become apparent that if you intend to stand outside a school dressed in filthy motorbike apparel, peering through the railings as the kids line up for assembly, you had better have a good cover story. At precisely 8.30am, I arrived at school number one. I parked my bike a couple of hundred yards away in consideration of the predictable logjam of people carriers and SUVs, because of course every four-foot tot needs seven seats and a low-ratio gearbox, and sauntered casually towards the gates as the first mums of the day began to converge and gaggle. I stopped a few yards away, looked down at myself as if surprised, and pulled my phone out of my pocket. I checked the screen and smiled, apparently delighted to receive a call from an old friend, then pretended to tap something and held the phone to my ear. Not one person witnessed this charade. By the time the swell of gathering mumflesh did start to notice me, I had been saying, yeah, great, and nodding for about five minutes, by which point I wasn't even convincing myself. Also, the innocent happenstance which had placed me outside the school was revealing itself to be a threadbare subterfuge as I was required to stretch on tiptoes in an attempt to get a clear view of the handful of staff who were chaperoning the children. An unkempt middle-aged man wearing lumpy bike jeans clumsily held together with rivets, mugging into his mobile phone whilst straining to get a better view of the school playground, wasn't quite the innocuous presentation I'd envisaged. "'Excuse me, what are you doing here?' Like an execrable ass, I told my phone to hold on a sec, and turned to discover that I had been outflanked in a pincer movement by a tightly coordinated platoon of suspicious mums. I accidentally walked my dog through a field of bullocks once, who took umbrage at the intrusion and charged, stopping short of trampling us, but quite capable of doing so if I hadn't obliged their territorial outrage by backing up to the fence and then throwing myself and the dog over it. With apologies for the analogy, the simmering distrust and gathering fury most evident amongst the dozen or so young women was equally terrifying. I told them that I wasn't doing anything here, just hanging around, and that made things significantly worse. Phones appeared from pockets, and I took that as my cue to get the fuck out of there. I didn't quite run, running would most assuredly verify guilt, but I definitely trotted, and that was probably sufficient to do likewise. Fortunately, I wasn't pursued, 
and I managed to leave the vicinity without riding past the school and revealing my registration number to the bloodthirsty horde. I hurried home and locked myself in my caravan, with the window cracked so that I could blow cigarette smoke through the gap, as if that would stop the place from stinking up. Based on learnings thus far, it would appear that my meticulously researched and finely detailed plan was, according to the current assessment, dog shit. I hadn't managed to gain an unobstructed view of any member of staff, and had things escalated, there's a likelihood that my mugshot would now be circulating on the socials, tagged as the Yorkshire nonce. By right of origin, I should more accurately be designated as the Hampshire nonce, but that would beg the question, which one? Having fossicked around in my imagination for an hour, I simply couldn't envisage an alternative to surveillance if I was to have any hope of locating Sophie Smith, but it was glaringly obvious that a modified modus operandi was required. I'm now very pleased with myself to announce that during my musings I may have devised a most ingenious revision, requiring nothing more than a hard hat, a high-vis jacket, and some paint. As Sun Tzu probably never said, the art of concealment is to hide in plain sight. This afternoon I am away once more to the DIY barn and for perhaps the first time in my life I know exactly what I need and exactly how to use it. International Day for the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons Things haven't gone to plan. That's not to say that it hasn't been an interesting couple of weeks during which I've won a fight and very nearly had sex. On the Tuesday morning I parked half a mile from school number two, costumed myself in the hard hat and high-vis, which I had artfully distressed by kicking them around the holiday park the previous evening, and set off up the road, swinging my can of white paint. A little before eight o'clock, I began to inspect a small pothole opposite the school entrance. I recorded every detail of its size, depth, distance from the curb, and so on, by typing gibberish into the Notes app on my phone. I then took several photographs of the offending divot and painted a white line around it as if to flag it for further attention. A section of missing curbstone received the same treatment, as did a drain cover and one of those metal lid things in the middle of the pavement which has something to do with the water mains. It is a miraculous irony of modern life that the glaring advertisement of a high-vis jacket instantly renders the wearer invisible. I lingered outside the school for 45 minutes, and nobody favoured me with so much as a passing glance, apart from one old man who informed me that it was about fucking time as he trundled past on his mobility scooter. My insignificance was unequivocal, 
and it meant nothing that I looked up each time someone approached and gave them a comprehensive once-over. I counted twenty-one staff into the school. None of them was Sophie Smith, but, on a minor point of irrelevance, the significant majority were indeed women. Thank you very much. As the mums began to arrive with their squawking progeny, they politely stepped around me, never pausing to question my presence, let alone chase me with pitchforks. Eventually, satisfied that all of the comings and goings had come and gone, I headed back to the holiday park to smoke and eat noodles until it was time for the afternoon shift at school number three. It was entirely possible that I was going to spend the next three weeks visiting two schools per day in order to not find Sophie Smith, but I readily assimilated that fact into my short-term expectations. Having a plan and a schedule and a process felt like work, and the structured monotony of gainful employment was something of a relief in the midst of the chaos I had somehow created in my life. By Thursday, I had entirely changed my mind. The monsoon had returned, and I was starting to pucker all over, thanks to the sodden hours spent staring at endless bloody fistulas in the road, the benumbing motorbike journeys to and fro, and the failure of the crappy little fan heater in my caravan to dry anything more than one sock at a time. Tenacity is a virtue I lack, having achieved nothing by persistence and little by chance, other than the maintenance of a seventeen-year marriage, which I would likely have buggered up as well if Sally hadn't opted out before I became restless and ruined it. On Friday morning it took the greatest effort of will to haul my soggy carcass away from the insipid warmth of my caravan, and my performance as inoffensive pothole inspector outside school number eight was perfunctory and lacking commitment. I did my best to monitor the arrivals by foot, bicycle and car, but my portrayal was leaning towards angry tramp, and I started to receive the occasional sideways look from more observant members of the faculty. Aware that my mask was slipping, I resorted to burying my face in my phone, projecting, I hoped, the image of a man too wrapped up in his work to be dangerous or mental. Unfortunately, the constant rain was forming rivulets on my hard hat, which fell as a curtain of drizzle from the brim and threatened to swamp the screen. Tucking it away in the least damp pocket I could find, I looked up in time to see a little red car turning onto the drive which ran from the school gate to a car park at the rear. Sophie Smith was at the wheel. I managed not to lose my shit entirely until she looked in my direction, at which point any capacity for coherent decision-making abandoned me, and I froze, goggle-eyed, 
hand halfway to a wave, drops of rain blowing into my open mouth where the word hi had lodged. Sophie turned away with a grimace and drove a little too quickly towards the car park. Now what? I'd predicted reverie should I succeed in locating my target, but instead I experienced an acid lurch of anxiety and had to sit on a wall. Naturally the wall was wet, and shortly thereafter so were my pants. Notionally, my plan was to contrive an accidental meet-cute. Two old friends bump into each other by chance and fall to talking about old times. But could I pull that off? I'm the antithesis of raconteur, presenting as an inarticulate simpleton when forced into the company of strangers, and nobody would describe me as scintillating. In a movie, I'd have a better opening line than Long Time No See, but as I tried to imagine enacting the encounter, I saw my character leading with this deficient gambit, mumbling something about the weather and then running away, awkward and embarrassed. Thirty years is a very long time, and it was ridiculous to assume that two people could simply fall back into companionable conversation after such a separation. I've known our family doctor for most of my life, but I still behave like a shamefaced cretin whenever I meet him, despite having allowed him to put his finger up my bottom on more than one occasion, although perhaps I'd be similarly unforthcoming with anyone who'd put their finger up my bottom. In the absence of charm, how was I going to ingratiate myself back into Sophie's company, to the point where I might comfortably probe her for information about our fellow alumni, without revealing my skullduggery and looking like a shit? It was a conundrum I needed to be significantly less damp to consider. Apparently, ladies don't put on makeup and brush their hair in order to encourage men to mount them. I think that was the intended takeaway from Friday's episode of Woman's Hour. Personally, I never thought that they did. There's no more effective deterrent than beauty if you want to prevent a bumbling, feeble wit like me from attempting to mount you. According to the programme's rent an expert, finessing one's appearance is to the benefit of the finesser in that it imbues them with confidence and self-assurance, which are the same thing as far as I can tell, but I'm not beyond doubling down with an extraneous synonym, so mustn't judge. Despite the questionable authority of the expert, I couldn't help but agree with the claim. I've only worn a suit on a few occasions, three if memory serves, and so bedecked I felt significantly more full of myself than I would normally do in straight-legged jeans and a ten-quid shirt from Sainsbury's. Certainly nobody tried to mount me, and wasn't that the point? Over the customary mid-morning noodles, sitting in my pants on the narrow fold-down plank that had pretensions to be a bed, I decided that a good overhaul would do wonders for my ability to beguile Sophie Smith. My funds were perilously low, but with a little persuasion and fewer cigarettes, 
they would probably extend to a haircut and a trip to the laundrette. A shave was definitely within my means, so, post-noodles, I set to hacking off several months' worth of scruff with my nail-scissors before shaving the remnants away in the customary manner. I had thought that a beard would be apposite for the rugged life of a man on the road, but it hadn't grown through evenly, and I'd taken on the appearance of an infested rescue dog. As I studied myself in the tiny spotty mirror above the toilet, renewing my acquaintance with my chin, I experienced another sudden flutter of panic. This wasn't going to work. The entire scheme was predicated on being able to bump into Sophie Smith on the street, but Sophie Smith drove to work in a small red car, and short of hurling myself across the bonnet, how the hell was I going to engineer the necessary collision? I couldn't exactly flag her down. She'd take me for a carjacker, or more likely a garden-variety roadside murder pervert. And I couldn't manufacture an encounter elsewhere. I didn't even know where she lived, and I had no idea how to go about finding out, unless I did something inconceivably creepy, such as following her home from work. So later that afternoon, I followed Sophie Smith home from work. The paucity of positive accomplishments in my life tends to balance the calculation of my worth unfavourably. I misplaced a wife, raised an ingrate, and made very little money doing something a gibbon with an etch-a-sketch could do better. As a consequence, I've learned to assume that the other person in the room is always wealthier, happier, and better satisfied with themselves than I am. Undeniably, I'm in the privileged minority, but perspective is relative, and it seems from here that everyone who should by rights be my equal has more and is more than me. Even the few people I know in the narrow world of commercial illustration always seem to land the better client and the longer contract, whilst I'm scribbling out the loading instructions for a Turkish dishwasher that will probably burn your house down within a year. I'm not greedy. I just wanted more from life. More of what, I don't know, but there's a palpable lack of something. I'm in my fifties now, and I'm scared that the opportunity to do whatever it was I needed to do in order to complete me has long passed me by. Of course, you'd be right to assume that when misfortune befalls those I envy, I take subtle delight in their travails, especially if they drive a BMW. But when I saw something of Sophie Smith's life, there was none of that spiteful delectation. Her little red car pulled to the curb in front of a row of shabby maisonettes, some pinhead's answer to affordable housing commissioned by the sort of wide-waisted autocrats who would never have to endure living in them. The brown brick façade was filthy with soot and faded graffiti, and each narrow frontage was augmented by an approach of sterile lawn and treacherous paving. 
Perhaps a fashion for outdoor living explained the prevalence of mouldering sofas and decomposing white goods. Certainly the neighbours were enjoying some fresh air. A bulky woman, with a face like an angry fist punched into a clot of stale dough, was wallowing on her doorstep, billowing fag fumes over a snot-soaked toddler in a pushchair, while some travesty of youth slobbered over a curly-whirly and appeared to stare at its own nose. Sophie climbed out of her car, and I was momentarily surprised to see that she was older and dumpier than she used to be, before castigating myself for my idiocy. Immediately the massive neighbour pounced, or rather undulated, and began waddling to the boundary of her territory, gesticulating towards a wheelie-bin at the side of the road, great flaps of hanging meat swinging from her underarms, as she remonstrated with Sophie, who tried to dismiss the wail with a nervous flutter of the hand. I had stopped on the opposite side of the road a few dozen yards back, and couldn't catch the fine details of the neighbour's complaint through my helmet, although it was curious how every iteration and variant of the word fuck somehow penetrated. In all possible regards, the confrontation was none of my business, and for all I knew the fleshy mound next door might have some legitimate grievance, but it was disquieting to watch Sophie curl into herself, evidently intimidated, yet trying to politely stand her ground. And so a dilemma. Attempt to intervene, or quietly retreat, with a view to returning once Jabber the Hutt had wound in what little neck she had. I was inclined towards cowardice, particularly on the issue of chivalry, having several times been scolded with censorious scowls by women I had outraged by holding a door open for them. The matter was decided, however, when the youth lumbered into the fray and began to contribute its own medley of expletives, leaving Sophie outnumbered two to one and outweighed by a significant factor. I leaned my bike on its stand and crossed the road, uncertain of the etiquette. Does one charge? Remarkably, Sophie withstood the offensive, at least until the youth stepped across the putative border between gardens and started jabbing a pudgy finger into her chest. I issued my war cry, a muffled, Oi! and didn't exactly charge, but definitely accelerated into a purposeful trot. The youth swung its prow towards me and inquired as to what exactly the fuck I wanted. An excellent question. I suggested it leave the lady alone, which it did, and instead set a collision course with me, porky digit raised and intent on favouring me with a good prodding. There was a thing on the news a while back, I've learned most of what little I know from a thing on the news, which featured a few shots of police officers being tutored in the art of shoving people. This requires a hand on either of the assailant's shoulders and a good hard push, 
although success seems very much dependent on shouting, Get back! as loud as you can, with maximum spittle directly into the miscreant's face. Evidently, I had catalogued this manoeuvre in some hinterland of consciousness and performed it with unlikely precision as the massive youth loomed. Fat Boy was the exact same shape as a Weeble. If anybody in the world remembers Weebles, they were rotund little egg-shaped characters who were marketed on the assertion that Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. I'm happy to report that, given sufficient lateral momentum, they in fact do fall down, and when they do, they look surprised and start to cry. I raised my own finger and informed the grounded monstrosity that trespass and aggravated assault would earn it eighteen months in custody should the lady choose to report the offence. This was pure speculation, as I have no idea what legal proofs might be required to substantiate assault, never mind qualify it as being aggravated, but Fat Boy's ignorance was greater than mine, and it wailed an appeal for clemency as Jabber attempted to roll it back across the frontier. A motorbike helmet does wonders for your machismo, and any pigeon-chested weed in a full face with a tinted visor immediately assumes the impregnable mystique of Robocop. I would entirely credit my authority in that moment to my lid, which is the very reason I didn't remove it. Sophie had left the scene and was halfway into her house. Our meat-cute had pretty much turned to shit anyway, so I abandoned caution and called her name. She looked startled and slammed the door. In 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary, standing on the foothills of Everest and considering the enormity of the challenge, could easily have said, fuck it. He would never have received the accolades, but at least he'd avoid the expectation of having to climb another load of old mountains afterwards. Staring at Sophie Smith's front door, I shared Sir Edmund's dilemma if not his sense of proportion. I could just throw in the towel, sit on the beach, read a book, and wait for the tides of fate to overwhelm me, at which point I'd probably regret throwing that towel away. Or I could step across the Rubicon, represented here by one of those plastic fibre doormats which turn black with mould at the first sign of rain, and commit body and soul to the expedition I had spent the last however many pages waffling on about and never quite getting on with. Poised to step forward and knock, or turn on my heel and surrender, my decisive moment was rendered moot when the door opened again. Sophie Smith looked out through weepy eyes and said, Go away. Running Backwards was written by Nick Forshaw and performed by Stuart Organ. Direction was by Alex Cazalet and the producer was Steve Manley. It was a Barefoot Ape production. If you're enjoying the series, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and a review and tell your friends. 
And if you'd like to support the show, please visit runningbackwards.co.uk.